we have been looking at the Christ, focusing on the Christ throughout the year. And uh, a couple weeks ago, we began looking at the return of Christ. We've considered the shadow of Christ. We considered the life of Christ and then the return of Christ. And um, three weeks ago, when we were looking at the return of Christ, we, we started off looking at the prophecies of his return. And, and as we've looked at the return of Christ, we've also considered his first coming as well, the, the, um, the advent of Christ, and then his second coming as well. And we've considered his prophecies. And then last week, we considered the timing of his coming. And as we consider the prophecies of his coming and the, the timing of his coming, in each of those, we consider the, the concept of the anticipation of his coming, which we want to look at more detail today. But as we consider the prophecies and as we consider the timing, we saw that there should have been some anticipation of his coming, but the people weren't ready for it. And I think we're going to see that again looking today at the, the return of Christ as well, the anticipation of his return. And so we want to begin, as we have, by considering the, the incarnation, his first coming, his advent, and then looking then at his return as well. And so first we'll consider the anticipation of his incarnation. And as we saw three weeks ago, and as we saw last week, in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, Daniel gives a pretty incredible um, testimony regarding the coming of the Messiah. He gives a timetable that's there, and we're not going to speak worrying about timetable. But as we looked at last week, that timetable should have given the people of his day a little bit of an inkling of when he might have the season of which he might have been coming. And so Daniel said in his prophecy in Daniel 9, he says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven and sixty-two weeks, the streets shall be built again, the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end of it shall come with a flood. And so the debate always is with these 69 weeks or 483 years, whose decree was it? Was it Artaxerxes' decree? Was it Cyrus's decree? Uh, was it Darius's decree? I believe it was Artaxerxes' decree. Uh, because Artaxerxes gave the decree to literally rebuild Jerusalem, not the temple. That was Cyrus, okay, that, that said to rebuild the temple. But to rebuild the actual city, okay, that was Artaxerxes' decree. And so if you would go to Artaxerxes and you work out 483 from, years from there, then you have this season of which Christ would come. Well, the question then you have also here then is, is it talking about the birth of Christ or is it talking about the 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 death of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, because it says that he'll be what? Cut off. Okay, but the beginning says, until the time of Messiah the Prince. So so anyways, the point here is you have this this unknown. You can't necessarily get to the what? Exact day or hour. You can't get the ex- necessarily even the exact month that he was going to come, but you should have an inkling of the what? The season, okay? That they should then been ready, they should have been understanding. Listen, the city of Jerusalem is being what? Rebuilt. And it's been rebuilt now for 400 and something years. Hmm. 483 years. Hmm. You know what? Messiah ought to be getting coming pretty soon. I think it might be in my my lifetime. Now, there might have been people who thought that, and they what? They died, and it wasn't in their lifetime, okay? But, but we know, as we're going to look at in just a moment, there were those who were anticipating it, who were looking forward to it, and it did come in their lifetime, okay? Zacharias, what do we read from Zacharias? Turn with me to to Luke chapter 1. We considered Zacharias last week, but we didn't look at the the angelic message to him. We only considered Zacharias from the point of the timing and from the time that he was actually serving. But in Luke chapter 1, beginning of verse 13, we read, the angel that is Gabriel, the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. What does this tell you right off the bat? If he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. He's special. More than likely, he's going to be a what? He's going to be a prophet, okay? I mean, this was a, a sign of, 
of, of him being a prophet, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And I think that's not just Lord, it's not probably Adonai, that's probably supposed to be Yahweh. And again, when we were talking in the past that Greek doesn't have a word for Yahweh there, okay? And so if they were going to be referring to Yahweh, they would still use um, Kyrios, which would go back to Adonai. And so, but he's to, to Yahweh their God. He will also go before him, that is God, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and make ready a people prepared for Yahweh. And so you are going to give birth to one who is going to be a prophet, is going to be filled with the spirit, and his task is going to be what? Prepare the way of Yahweh. What do we know from the prophet Isaiah? If you've been coming to Sunday school and we've been going through the, the book of Isaiah together, what, do we, what, did, what did Isaiah declare about one who was to come? He would have a forerunner. When Yahweh came, that's exactly right, there would be the forerunner who would prepare the way of Yahweh. In fact, when John is on the earth, and we're not even going to talk about that right here, but when John was on the earth and he said, well, who are you? If you're not Elijah and you're not Messiah, who are you? He says, I'm the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Well, Zacharias is told this even before his birth by Gabriel that he would be this one. He would be the prophet who would go before Yahweh's coming, and he would be preparing the way of, of the Lord. Drop down to verse 67 um, with Zechariah's Zacharias, declaration, his prophecy as well. And it says, Now his father, this is John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God, I think Yahweh Elohim, of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, John, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of Yahweh to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has or shall visit us to give light to those who sit in darkness and shadow of death to guide our feet into the, the way of peace. Now, what's important about this? First of all, we have Daniel that gives us a season, okay? And there are other prophecies that we go into, but Daniel's enough just to show that there should be some concept of season, right? Nine months before we read this prophecy of Zacharias, he receives a prophecy from the, 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 the angel Gabriel, right? What do we know, at least last week when we were talking about timing, what do we know what was the, the context, the situation, the surroundings of when Zacharias received that prophecy from Gabriel? What was he doing? He was, offering, um, he was offering incense in the temple. Okay, What else was going on? There was a multitude of people waiting for them. And they were wondering what was taking him so long to offer the incense. I mean, this was a not you know a, a, a hard task. You know, it was a special task. They only got to do it once in their life. I didn't get to share that last week. But this was the, the offer of the incense was something the priest only could do once. And so this was a special moment for him, okay? And so, but it wasn't normal for the priest to go in there and relish the moment this long, okay? And so they're they're, they're wondering what's going on, Phyllis. Well, I I I, sh- I share that a lot because if he's part, if it's if it's Am Yom Kippur, if he's if he's serving on Yom Kippur, that would be the case because on Yom Kippur he would be in the holy and holies and the bells would be on him, okay? But regardless of all that, but yes, did God strike him dead when he's offering the incense? Because we know what happened to Nadab and Abihu. You know, they offered strange incense, right? And God had the fire come out and wipe them dead. And all of a sudden, here's Zacharias. He's not here anymore. Well, Zacharias comes out. All the people are, are attentive to Zacharias coming out. I mean, talk about having a crowd, right? And he comes out, and they go, what took you so long? And he can't talk. I know some of you are praying for that miracle today. Anyways, and, and, and he can't talk. But, you know, it just gets longer because i got all this to say, and it takes a real long time to put this on a whiteboard. Okay, but And so I can imagine just as he asked for the chalkboard on the, the, when John was born so he could say his name is 
John, I can imagine him doing signals and everything and, and people bringing him something to write on and letting him know, I've seen this angel. This angel has appeared to me. I've had a vision. And we're told that the people understood that he had a, he had a vision, right? And so I would think, we're not, we don't read this, so I'm reading between the lines, but wouldn't you think that some of this would have made the daily news in Jerusalem? You read you get the Jerusalem Times the next day, and you hear about the priest who, who had this vision. Now, I know, they probably didn't have the Jerusalem Times and that kind of stuff. But word of mouth travels fast, okay? And, and depending on when he was meeting, if he was, if he was serving, if he was serving, now understand this is an if, okay? Conjecture. If he was serving during one of those feasts when everybody was there, hence the multitude, word would really go out about this priest who had this vision, right? What was the vision about? My wife's going to have a baby. No way. I mean, you're talking like Sarah. Well, see, Sarah did have a baby. Okay, well, maybe it's good, you know. And so, and so, I mean, next to Sarah, this is unheard of, right? Well, what happens? Elizabeth is with child. It is unheard of. Now, don't you think that would make the truth sometimes? And then, when she gives birth, and everybody wants to call him something else, he gets the, the, the little chalkboard and writes down his name is John, and then immediately what? He could talk. And people go, whoa! And then the first thing he declares is this prophecy, that, that again, this son is going to be the one who prepares the way for Yahweh. Now, I don't know about you, but if there's any kind of concept of season happening with me, that Daniel's vision might be happening in my lifetime, this this priest having a vision and his wife having a child and saying that his child is going to be the forerunner of Yahweh would tell me what? Season's getting real close. Now, I don't know exactly when this other child's going to be born, and I don't know when Messiah is going to come on the scene, but I know that if this child is his forerunner, that we're now within a what? We're really in a close season, right? Well, it gets better than that. It doesn't end there, does it? We have these proclamations of his coming now. Not just prophecies of his coming, but now we have proclamations of his coming. And the first one that we read about, and we, we do all the time at Christmas, is by the what? The shepherds. They're out in their fields that night, right? And the angels come to them. First, they have one angel who comes to them and declares that, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Mashiach, Christ the Lord. Mashiach. Adonai, he's the, he's the one who's going to come and reign. And, and they're just filled with this wonder and amazement. And as they, as they look up and they're listening to this message, now all of a sudden the skies are filled with this angelic host. I know, the big choir with the, with the, the you know, I've probably dispelled that enough for you. But anyways, I think there's, are they warriors and are, are they holding their swords out, you know? I mean, I'm just kind of picture what this, this host would be. And they're all crying out. They're not singing. It says, and they say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace um, and goodwill toward men. And you can translate however you want to translate that. But the point is, they come and they begin, this whole sky full of angels is giving glory to God. And, and so the shepherds look at each other and they say, what? Wow, I guess we ought to go down and figure out, see if, see if this thing has come to pass. I mean, what would you think? You know, if you got a special visitation by angels, when's the last time you had one of those? Yeah, you, you, you try to take this thing serious, right? So they head to Bethlehem, and they find the place where this child is wrapped in swaddling clothes. That's going to be a, a, a sign for them, that a, a baby's going to be wrapped in swaddling clothes, but he's going to be lying in a manger. Not a usual occurrence. And so they go, and they find him, and they worship this one who is born Christ the Lord, right? And then we're told in Luke chapter 2, what do they do? They go out declaring it. They, they tell everybody, everybody they meet, they're letting them know, Messiah is born, Messiah is born. We had this vision of angels. An angel came and told us, unto, this, unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and we have seen him with our eyes. And this angelic host came giving glory and praise to God. And you're thinking, stinking shepherds? Why would, they, why would God send angels to stinking shepherds? But they're declaring it to all the people. And you think, again, if there was any mindset that... I mean, remember, this is only six months after Elizabeth gave birth to John. And so if the scuttlebutt's going out there about Zechariah's vision and Zechariah's wife having this baby and Zechariah's prophecy at the birth of his baby, 
Make sense? And Bethlehem is only six miles south of it, and it's where they raised the, 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 the sheep that were going to be sacrifices. Okay? And so you think that they probably would have heard some of that. That's the city of David. If you were expecting Messiah to come, where would you expect Messiah to come from? Not Jerusalem, but the city of David, because it would become from the line and lineage of David. Right? And so you'd think there would be a little bit of anticipation, and you'd think that that stable in the manger area would be what? Just filled with worshipers. But we don't see that. Well, then eight days, on, on the eighth day, Joseph and Mary take Jesus to the temple so that he can be circumcised according to the, the law. And as they go to the temple to have Jesus circumcised according to the law, they run into Simeon, or Simeon runs into them. Simeon is in the temple. He's awaiting. He believes the prophecies. Did he, did he know of Zacharias' case? Maybe probably so. He's in the temple and he's waiting because he knows. Now, I don't know. I'm reading between the lines here. Okay. That if Messiah is born, what's going to happen one day? He's going to come to the temple and I'm going to be here when he comes. And so he takes his baby and he blesses the baby and he recognizes Messiah. Isn't this exciting? I mean, there was no sign. There was no big, you know, neon sign over Mary and Joseph and, and, and the baby Jesus. This is Messiah. This is Messiah. This is Messiah. They didn't go walking in. And there wasn't an entourage behind them. They're walking into the temple. And all of a sudden, Simeon recognizes them. The Holy Spirit leads them to him. And he begins to give glory and praise to God and blesses the baby and blesses the parents and says to Mary, and a sword's going to pass through your own heart, through your own soul. And then on the hills of, of Simeon, we have Anna, who is of the tribe of Asher, who, who comes and, and she takes the baby and she blesses the baby and she, and she begins to declare to everybody in the temple the redemption of Israel and how this baby is going to bring it about. Now again, I don't know about you, I don't know what's recorded in the Jerusalem Times that day, but I would think that shepherds, having a vision from angels and declaring Messiah is born. And then eight days later, according to the law, when the child is being circumcised, that there were these older people, Anna, we're told, stayed night and day in the temple waiting for Messiah to come, who declared the Redeemer to hear. You would think some of this scuttlebutt's going out. I mean, all of this didn't happen in a closet. Well, what happens about a year later to a year and a half later? Magi. Magi come from the east. And they come to Jerusalem saying what? Where is he who was born king of the Jews? If you're a Jew, who is he asking about? Messiah. Now, a year and a half, somewhere between a year and two years earlier, Zacharias has a vision that his child was going to be born, a son, who was going to be the one preparing the way for Yahweh. And then we have this other child who was born, where shepherds receive a vision, and they're declaring to everybody that Messiah is born. And then you go eight days later in the temple, and you got these two older people who are seen to be righteous people who have been waiting for Messiah to come. They're declaring that this one is Messiah. I would think there would be a buzz in Israel. I mean, theoretically, who have they been waiting for? They've been waiting for Messiah. And all these proclamations are going on that Messiah is what? He's here. He's here. And now you've got these wise men from the east coming in, saying, where is he? Where is he as born king of the Jews? We expected by now that everybody would know. But we're told that all Jerusalem was what? Upset. Why? Because Herod was upset. <laughs> Herod was bothered by these proclamations. I think word was coming to Herod. That Herod was getting wind of things going on. And Herod saw it as a what? A threat to himself. And so now all of a sudden you got these kings coming in, and they're looking for it. It's not just bad enough that the people are, are coming up with these things, but now all of a sudden you've got representatives from foreign lands coming, looking for the one who is being born king of the Jews. That's exactly right. And Herod believed it more than the Jews. Think about it. Because Herod goes straightway to the priest, the high priest and to the scribes, right? And he says what? 
So where's he supposed to be born? And right off the bat, instantly, these guys knew the prophecy, so they would should have understood the proclamations. Oh, in Bethlehem of Ephrathah, for for the scriptures say, and then they quote the scriptures that Jesus or Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. And so he tells the the wise men, "Oh, go to Bethlehem, and when you find him, let me know where he's at, so I can come and what, kill him, yeah, worship him, so I can go and kill him." And uh, and that's what he's thinking. Well, God warns the the wise men. We know the rest of the story. But anyways, you would think that with all these proclamations going on, that the people would be what, anticipating it. They would be filled with great anticipation for Messiah. But what do we know? They missed it. They didn't go. He was in the world, and they missed it. He was, first of all, he was coming. They, the season was upon them. They missed it. And then the season grew closer, and they were given a, 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 almost an exact timetable, though it wasn't exact, okay? But it was still a closer season. They knew within the, 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 the time frame that it was happening. They still missed it. And they were told after it happened. And they what? Still missed it. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it was when Jesus came, and Jesus says, so it will be what? When he returns. They're not going to be what? They're not going to be looking for it. They're not going to be watching for it. But interestingly, interestingly, in the word of God, anticipating and looking forward to and yearning for Christ's return and Christ's presence is a mark of believers. Now, it won't wane and wax on it, but as a whole, those who are his should be yearning for his coming, should be yearning to be joint with him. Do you remember when Paul said, for me to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. He says, I desire. Philippians 1, he says, he says, he says you know, I desire to me, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, but what I shall choose I wot not, having desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but nevertheless to abide in my flesh is more needful for you. And having this, this, this burden, I know that I'm going to stay here. He says, but I'd rather die. I'd rather die so I can be with Jesus, but Jesus wants me to be here with you to minister to you. Make sense? So he's yearning for it. Well, what about then the anticipation of his return? What about us? What about the world that we're in? I mean, think about it. The priests, the one who knew the word, who knew the timing and everything, they weren't what? They weren't waiting. What about us? Well, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. The reading that we had this morning, we started off the service with this morning, Steve read. And, and let's look at what we read about these, these newborn Thessalonians, these, these Gentiles, these, these pagans, who had heard about Jesus Christ in the, in the testimony that they received from Paul regarding the good news of Jesus Christ. Beginning at verse 6, we'll start there. We read that, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you, the word of the Lord has what? Sounded forth. What's the first thing that happened when they got saved? They wanted to tell people. They were, they were like the shepherds. They wanted to tell. It was this good news. They wanted everybody to know what they had heard, right? Well, from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us concerning us, what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols for two purposes. You turned from God, from, from idols to God, two purposes. First of all, to do what? To serve the living and true God, and secondly, to what? To wait for Jesus. That when you turn to God you, from your idols, you understood your idols were what? They were nothing. They were worthless. They were fake. And you turned away from them, and you turned to the living, not dead, and true, not false, God. You did it for two purposes. First of all, 
waiting for his return. But while you're, while you're waiting, to do what? To serve him. Now, what's really neat is this word service, to serve him. There are different words in, in the Greek for, to serve. For example, uh, we, we have a, um, the, the, the office, quote-unquote, we refer to as deacon. Well, that's actually a transliteration straight from the Greek. Okay, A deacon is a servant, a minister. When we talk about, oh, who's your minister? People always say, oh, Bob's the minister. I'm, that's, that's actually the word deacon. Okay, And so ones who are servants, we all ought to be what? Deaconing. We all ought to be serving. Okay, But this isn't that word. This is actually the word for doulos. It's, it's the, the verb form of that duluo. And doulos is what? Anybody remember? Not just a servant. It's a slave. It's a bond slave. Now, it's not a slave who doesn't have an option. It's a slave who has been an indentured servant or a slave who has come to the point where they can have their what? Their liberty, their freedom. But they have chosen to retain subjection to the master. These newborn believers turn from their idols to God, the living and true God, in order to be bond slaves. In order to, if you were bringing it into the verb form, to bond slave for Jesus. Which meant that they recognized Jesus as what? Not just a savior, not just as a as the as the, the the fire insurance, but as their master, as their Lord. And I'm not getting into lordship salvation here, but the fact is that someone who is truly Christ, if they're truly Jesus' disciple, they're gonna want to follow the teachings of their what? Discipler, of their master, of their Lord. And so they said, while we're here on the earth, we want to be bond slaves of Jesus. So I want to ask you, while you're waiting for Jesus, hopefully you're waiting for Jesus, but while you're waiting, are you serving you? Or are you serving Jesus? Who's, who's sitting on the throne of your heart? Is there the big S standing for self? Or is it the big C standing for Christ? We mentioned in Sunday school this morning from Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, we talked about it last night in the, in the Victors, where it says that trust in the Lord, trust in Yahweh with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding, acknowledge him in all your ways, and he will what? Direct your paths. You ought to be leaning on him at all times for all decisions. Do we? Do we look to the Lord? Now, I understand I'm not perfect in this, okay? It's my hunger. It's my desire. I want to be. I want to be walking with him and fellowshiping with him all times. But I know that what happens? The S gets in the way of the C sometimes. And I've got to continually remind myself that self is flesh. And it ought to be Christ who reigns in my heart and not Bob. Well, these Thessalonians got it. They had this, this new believer vibrancy that was going on. And they weren't caring about their own lives. They believed that Jesus was coming. And apparently, they believed that Jesus was coming when? In their lifetime. And it had a transformation process on them. Because the word waiting here actually talks about remaining and abiding. And it means that they were going to, they were dwelling. I mean, they were, they, were, they were here. They were sitting in the spot. They weren't moving. Jesus was coming. And they were what? They were looking forward to it, and they were going to serve him. They were going to slave for him until the day happened. So, until Jesus comes, we are to be serving and to be waiting, performing the will of our our master. The question is, are we? Am I? Are you? Secondly, we're told we're supposed to be sober and watching. Flip over to chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. We've looked at this passage a couple times over this little mini-series within the series. Beginning at verse 1, just for context here, we're going to be starting at verse 4. It says, But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord, comes as a thief in the night. And when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon the pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. 
But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. You are not of, of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. Well, in this passage that we just read, there are some couple key phrases, a couple key words that, that are really important to us. Notice when he goes on, he says, verse 6, he says, Let us, therefore, not sleep. And you can see that I have the Greek word um, brought into the English for you, kathodomen. Uh, it says, as others do, but let us watch. And this is where we get our name Gregory from, Gregoroman, okay? And be sober, okay, nephoman, for those who sleep, okay, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are sober, or love the day, be sober, okay? So you can see there's this play going on between these two words, between watching and being sober, okay? Those two together, kind of joined, and sleeping. So you're either sleeping or you're what? You're watching and being sober, okay? Now what's interesting here is he says that we're not those who should be sleeping, but rather, we're supposed to be those who are day in, in the daytime. So we should be what? Watching and sober. Verse 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you're not going to see this other than the Greek here, depending on what your translation you're looking at. It says, who died for us, that whether we what? Wake. Ah. Notice it's the same word, Gregor Omen. Whether we're watching or whether we're sleeping... We will what? We'll live together with them. Now, this is an encouragement here. What should you be doing? You should be watching. You should be what? You should be sober. You should be, the, 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 the word for sober there, Nepha Omen, talks about um, abstaining from or not having been influenced by any intoxicants. Okay? And so it comes from the negative ne with pino, meaning to drink. Okay? Usually to drink alcohol. Okay? And so it's not being influenced by any intoxicants. It, well, no, but the word pino is actually to drink. But you could, you could look at it however you want to look at it. They didn't worry about drugs back then. More they were talking about wine. And so, but the idea is that you're not being influenced by something else. Okay? So the, the term doesn't necessarily mean you know, that you're not drunk. It just means that you're what? You're sober. You're clear-headed. You're, you're, you're even-killed. You're discreet. You're... You're able to think what? Clearly. Okay? And so you're watchful. And the word watchful, a lot of times for Gregor Oman, is the word being vigilant. Okay? And, and sometimes it can mean to be awake, whether we wake. Because if you're on your watch and you're vigilant on your watch, that means that you're not what? You're not sleeping. You're awake. Okay? And that's how it comes derived to, to, to be translated as wake sometimes. But you're watchful. And so it's, it's you are the watchman on the watchtower, think Jeremiah. And you're looking out there, and you see the enemy approach. Okay? Um, Babylon's coming. And what are your, what's your job supposed to be? You're supposed to blow the trumpet, blow the horn, let everybody know that the enemy is coming so they can what? They can get up to the defense. They can get up on the walls. They can defend the city. Well, think same concept. You're the watchman on the watchtower. And you see the season approaching. You hear the good news of Jesus Christ. What's your job? It's supposed to be the lepers who are outside the, the city walls, right? Who realize that the, the Assyrian army has fled. And there's, what? Tons of food in the camp. They could have sat there for months and been gluttons while everybody was dying. Because think about it. That would have been just. That would have been, or just, that would have been fair, there because why were they even outside the gate because they were thrown out and they weren't allowed in so so they they only their only reason they went to the Assyrian army was to see whether the Assyrians might have anybody any kind of mercy or at worst case they would what they would kill them and they'd be out of their pain so right and so they could have just stayed in the in the, in the camp and said no we're just going to eat this but they said no this is wrong this is a day of what 
rejoicing in good news. And we need to go share the good news. There's food in the camp. I wonder sometimes how much extra food did they get? You know? I mean, what did the city, you know, were the city excited about it? There they go out and they what? They ate everything, they pushed them aside and they ate everything up. That's right. Okay? Well, we're supposed to be those who are what? Watchful. We're supposed to be awake and alert. We're not supposed to be distracted and intoxicated with the world, if you would. That's where I think Romans 12, when Paul says, I, I therefore beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable act of worship or service, and that you be not conformed to this world, but rather be transformed in the renewing of your mind, that you may be able to prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of, of God. Sometimes we get intoxicated with the world, and we don't look to who? We don't look to the Lord. We don't look to Jesus. We don't look to God. We're not focusing on Him. We're focusing on self in the world rather than on Christ and what is proper for Him. We're supposed to be sober and watching. Now, in this concept of watching and being sober and watching, um, the, the word uh, greater omen is the same word in 1 Peter 5.8. You don't need to turn there for this. But where it says that you're, um, Peter says to the believers to be what? Vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, is doing what? He's lurking about. He's walking about seeking who may, may devour. Well, if I told you there was a lion in the street, okay? There was a lion prowling a neighborhood, and you were outside playing, what would you do? You'd be continuing looking over your shoulder to make sure that the lion wasn't there, okay? This is the, the idea of the watching. In Matthew 24, we looked at this passage over the last couple of weeks as well. This is in the context of, of the days of Noah and such. Jesus finalizes this and he says, Watch therefore, Gregor Roman, okay, Gregor Ete, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have what? He would have watched. He would have been on his guard. He would have been staying awake. He would have been paying attention and not allow his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be what? Ready. If you are watchful, if you are alert that something may happen on your watch, if you live like the enemy is coming, if you would, okay, not saying Jesus is the enemy, but take the analogy. If I'm in my foxhole and, and if I am, if I believe that the enemy could come during my time in that foxhole, How's it going to affect my life at that moment? I'm going to have my weapon ready. I am going to be ready for the defense. Well, the same thing, take the analogy. If I believe that Jesus is coming in my lifetime, if he could come today, if I really believe that Jesus could come today, how am I going to live? Ready to meet him. Ready to meet him. And so he says, therefore you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you don't what? Expect. And so Ben and I, we, we've been talking different times. They said, if anybody sets a what? They set a date, then we know what? It's not happening. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Okay? Now, it may happen, but more than likely, it's probably not going to happen because no man knows the what? Day or the hour. Okay? And so the reality is, it's going to come in a day when you don't expect. Now, you should be of the day, and you should be ready. You should be watching, but you may not know what. Even though you're watching and though you're ready, you still don't know what? The exact moment. It's that time I think I shared in the past when I was in my ROTC advance camp. And, and they told us that the 82nd Airborne was probably going to attack that night. Okay? So I was what? I was watchful all night. And I was at the ready all night. And it's amazing how many bushes seem like they move. You know, in the wee hours of the night when you've been up all night and you're and you're waiting, and you're, you're alert, and you're expecting, and then all of a sudden you see fire down the other end of the, of, the, of the line, and you assume what? It's happening. It's coming. The enemy's attacking. And, and what do you do then? You start firing back. <laughs> you start shooting at the fire, you know. And Anyways, and so um, they never attacked that night. Um, it was a false alarm. They just wanted to see if it would stay up all night. But we were watching, and we were ready. And you know what? You start shooting at things that aren't even there. But we believed. Do you get it? We believed that it was what? It was happening. 
And so we were ready. We were ready. The guns were never out of our reach. Usually they were right there in our hands. When I'm hunting, and, you know, and it's dark, usually the gun is sitting on, on my, I have a little, um, what do you call it, support, guard, no, 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 up in the tree, when I'm up in the tree. I have a little guard that's there, and I, I kind of let the tree just kind of, or the tree, the, the, the rifle just sitting, sitting in the guard while it's dark. I can't shoot anyway, so I'm resting. But the minute the light starts happening, you know, and, I, and, 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 the, and the darkness is, is, is coming away, what do I do? I grab my rifle, and I've got it sitting here, and I am ready. And the lighter it gets, do you know what I do? I cock it. Especially if I hear any kind of what? Sound. If I hear any noise, I'm what? I'm ready. I'm there, and I'm prepared for the moment. Jesus said, if you know that the thief is coming, and Paul said, it shouldn't overtake you like the thief, then you should be what? You should be ready. Well, what does it mean to be ready? First of all, it means to be saved. Turn with me to Matthew 25. We looked at Matthew 24 there, but in Matthew 25, the passage we were going to end on last week was going to be the transitional coming into this week, is about the, um, the virgins... In the bridegroom. In the beginning of verse 1 we read, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. None of you told me that I didn't light the lamp. I ignored my big sign saying light the lamp. I light the candle. Huh? Uh, just yell at me next time. It said, should be likened like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming! Go out to meet him! Then all the virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and for you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said to them, Assuredly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. The oil is theologically, a lot of times, spiritually seen to be the Holy Spirit, salvation. Okay, That when you're saved, you're sealed with what? The Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you. And so, clearly, there were ten people who were semi-anticipating Jesus. Five of them were what? Ready. And five weren't. Now, I don't know each of your hearts as well as you don't know, honestly, don't know mine. We're all going to give an account to the Lord what? Individually. That's exactly right. All I know is I went to church for 23 years, and I knew that Jesus Christ had come. I celebrated Christmas. I celebrated Easter. I believed that he died on the cross. And I believed that he was coming again. I knew that he was coming again. Does that make sense? But I didn't know him. There was no oil in my lamp. And if Jesus would have came when I was 22, I wouldn't have been trimmed out and ready because there was no oil in my lamp. Do you get it? I would have missed it. I don't know where all you're at. I hope there's oil in every one of your lamps. But the first being ready is making sure you're saved. Because if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if there's no oil in your lamp, when he comes, it's going to be too late. And you can go bang on the door, but Jesus says what? I don't know you. John 17, Jesus said, This is life eternal, that they may 
know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Jesus said it's reciprocal because in Matthew 7, he talks about the fact that these people said, Lord, Lord, did I cast out demons in your name? Did I not do all these wonderful things in your name? And he says, depart from me, you son of lawlessness, for I didn't know you. You may proclaim to know me, but the reality is, I didn't know you. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you ever accepted him as your Messiah and as your Lord? If not, the Bible says, Behold, today is the day of your salvation. What a glorious time of the year to give your life to Christ. When you celebrate the, the, the birth of Christ and the, and the coming of redemption, to celebrate it as well. Well, for us, there's also the be sanctified. Turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus 2. Okay, Titus 2. Let's start at verse 11. We're going into chapter 3. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of what? Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, loving, all humility, to show, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, and not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of the regeneration of the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Paul says to Titus, as he was as Titus was ministering to others, he says, listen, these are the things that I want you to, to, to encourage them in. He says that as we're looking for the return of Jesus Christ, as we're looking for the appearing of Christ, it should have what effect upon us? We should be turning away from our lusts. We should be desiring to be set apart more and more to Jesus Christ. And in doing that, verse 1 of chapter 3 tells us that we should be ready for all good works. Well, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, the 10, sorry, 8 to 10, tells me that very clearly, because 8 and 9 is the one we always quote, but verse 10 is right there with it. Verse 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2 says, By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which we which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. That's exactly right. So when God saved me, when God redeemed me, he redeemed me for a purpose. And that purpose was to go all the way back to what we talked about first with the Thessalonians, and that was to serve him, to, to be his bond slave, if you would. And so to be ready for every good work, to seek to be set apart unto the master to be sanctified, to be holy before the Lord. And so I ask myself, as I ask you then, where are you at in chapter 2, verse 12? Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, so that you can live what? Soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. What effect is Christ's return having upon you? Now, last week we looked at timing. And so if you weren't here, you'll have to, um, in a couple weeks when I get all those things up on the web, you can, you can go and listen to it. But the fact is, I believe Jesus is coming in my lifetime. Could I be wrong? I could be wrong. I could die today, and he's not coming in my lifetime, unless he came before I, I died. But if I died, that means I wasn't resurrected or raptured. And so I could die before that, and I could be wrong. But I believe the seasons are out there that he's coming in my lifetime. If I live to a ripe old age, if I live to you know the, the season of life for me, okay, that somewhere in that season, Jesus is coming. The question then is, 
If you believe that for yourself, if he's coming in your lifetime, what change does it make? Do you believe that Jesus could come at any time? Do you believe he could come today? Are you honestly looking forward to the coming? I mean, not just do you believe he's coming, that's intellectual, but are you looking forward to it? Are you yearning for it? Are you yearning for Jesus to come? Or are you saying, well, man, I'd really rather have him hang out for another couple of years so that I can experience this or this of the world? Really? Think about it then. Are you intoxicated with the things that the world offers? Or are you more yearning for Jesus Christ? How faithfully are you performing the Master's will? Are you being a bond slave of Jesus Christ? And when he returns... Will you be a part of the gathered church? Are you saved? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? So when he returns and he gathers his church to be with him, will you be a part of that? And finally, what effect is Christ's imminent return having upon your life? Now, we're not going to sing um, that, the song that's in the bulletin. I, I, I desired to have a, a special today. And uh, we're going to have the words up as well. Um, maybe. Um, up as well while um, Matt and Gabrielle and, and Jesse sing. Um, many of you know the song from um, Casting Crowns um, while you were sleeping. And the words are impactful and, to, and really challenge that, you know, just as it was in the days of Bethlehem in Jerusalem, you know, when Jesus was born, they should have been what? They should have been expecting it. There should have been some anticipation for his coming. And when when the time came in Jerusalem, when the Magi came, there should have been some, what? Anticipation that was going on. And I mean, we didn't even talk about all the miracles that he did when he was put on the cross. I mean, there should have been some anticipation for who this guy was. What about here today? For us in the United States, will it be a matter of us not anticipating, but actually being asleep? 